It takes just a moment to send a message from Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, home of NASA's Near Earth and Space Networks, where I am, to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, home of NASA's Deep Space Network. I can look up a phone number in the NASA directory and call them. I could type an email. I could send an instant message. Collaboration between these NASA centers, some 2,500 miles apart, has never been easier. Web conferences can be arranged within minutes. Should an in-person meeting be necessary? A five-hour flight could take someone from Goddard to JPL by the close of business. In the 1800s, though, communications between these centers would have been impossibly inefficient. Mail had to be carried by hand to the West Coast. The delivery could take months by ship or as many as 25 days by stagecoach. There was one exception, though. It wasn't as fast as an email or a phone call, but this delivery system could deliver mail across the continent in an average of 10 days. The Pony Express, in operation from April of 1860 to October of 1861, had mail carriers on horseback riding at breakneck speeds. Riders would switch mounts every 10 to 15 miles to give the horses a break. Every 75 to 100 miles, couriers would pass their mochias, hybrid saddles slash mailbags, along to the next rider in just two short minutes. The Pony Express, though a logistical feat, was never financially solvent. It was just too expensive to use or operate the network. But... The nail in the coffin for the Express wasn't a fiscal failure. It became obsolete. In October of 1861, Western Union completed a transcontinental telegraph line. The Pony Express shuttered two days after. Though the Pony Express was only around for a year and a half, its legacy endures. The Smithsonian Institute's National Postal Museum in Washington has an exhibit featuring aspects of the Pony Express's short but fascinating history. Stories and histories of the Old West often use this incredible transformation in the speed of communications to clearly delineate the past from the present, a bygone era from our digital one. In spite of this, The Pony Express serves as a simple, if imperfect, metaphor for a bold new networking technology that might just revolutionize space communications, enabling an interplanetary internet. Disruption Tolerant Networking, or DTN. I'm Danny Baird. This is The Invisible Network. On Monday, May 6, 2019, NASA Goddard played host to a networking luminary, Dr. Vint Cerf, Vice President and Chief Internet Evangelist at Google, and JPL Distinguished Visiting Scientist. Cerf came to speak to the communications and navigation community in a forum focused on his role in founding the Internet and, more recently, the maturation of DTN technologies. Wearing one of his signature three-piece suits, He outlined the development of the IP, or Internet Protocol, that allows computers on Earth to interact with one another. It's a foundational technology of the Internet, with a long history, but one that many are unaware of. 
What follows are Cerf's recollections of that effort, from infancy to fruition. But there are some things you need to know before you listen. First, some acronyms. ARPA, or Advanced Research Projects Agency, later called DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, was and is a branch of the military responsible for developing emerging technologies with potential military applications. ARPANET was an early network developed by ARPA, which became the foundation for the internet as we know it today. Second, some technical details. Packet switching is a method of transmitting bundled data over a network. TCPIP, or Transmission Control Protocol slash Internet Protocol, governs the connections between computers and the internet, enabling packet switching. Command and control is a military term that refers to the process by which information is spread through the chain of command and to allied forces. Third, I've edited Cerf's talk down for the purpose of this podcast, but there's so much more to this history than what I've included. I'd encourage you to search the internet to learn more, but in the meantime, enjoy. And if it's all a little too technical, feel free to flip forward 20 minutes to catch the end of the episode and learn more about DTN. 50 years ago, uh, the first four nodes of the ARPANET were put into operation, and I was a graduate student at UCLA. Uh, My responsibility was to get this computer hooked up to the interface message processor that formed one of the four packet switches of the original ARPANET. Uh, so uh, that was the very beginning of a, what became a wide area packet switching experiment, a very, very successful one. At the time, packet switching was considered to be extremely risky. Uh, most of the traditional communications people said it wouldn't work, said they didn't want to have anything to do with this crazy idea, but they'd be happy to sell dedicated circuits to us so we could build our stupid network. Uh, so, so we did, and they did, and it worked. So the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency funded the ARPANET initially not to deal with nuclear war or anything else. They simply had a dozen universities that were doing research in artificial intelligence and computer science. And every year, every single one of the computer science departments said to DARPA, you need to buy us a world-class computer every year so we can do world-class research. And even ARPA couldn't afford to buy another, you know, mainframe computer, a dozen of them, for each university. So they said, we're going to build a network and you're going to share. And everybody hated that idea. Uh, But DARPA said, we're going to build a network and you're going to share. So this was a resource-sharing experiment initially. It was also an experiment in packet switching. My good friend, Steve Crocker, whom I mentioned I'd met in 1959, started a document series called Requests for Comments. And some of you who might have had something to do with either the Internet Engineering Task Force uh, or uh, or other Internet work will have encountered these documents because um, they, although the first one came out in April of 1969, there are some 8,800 of them now and, and, uh, and counting. Steve led the network working group, which developed the host-to-host protocols for the ARPANET. They're the early um, equivalent of the TCP IP protocols of the internet, uh, somewhat less capable because they relied on the underlying network for reliability. The internet uh, assumed that none of the networks were reliable and we had to do end-to-end recovery, which by the way is a feature also of the delay and disruption tolerant networking bundle, bundle protocol. So Bob Kahn and I did the design of internet over a six-month period from the spring 
to the fall of 1973. We wrote a paper which was published in May of 74. I started a series of, of experimental notes uh, separate from the RFC series because we didn't know, you know whether this was going to work either. Uh, but we switched over to the RFC series as we got deeper into uh, the design. So we had a detailed specification of the TCP IP protocols. Actually, it was only TCP at that point in December of 1974. By the way, if, uh, if you wonder where did the term internet come from, it was a short form of internetworking. And it was used for the first time in uh, the title of the uh, December 1974 RFC. While I was at ARPA, um, I was uh, advised by my then boss, Bob Kahn, also my partner in the design of this system, that if I got hit by a bus, I should make sure that somebody else knew how this thing was supposed to work. So we created the Internet Configuration Control Board. The name was selected purposefully to sound as boring as possible so nobody would want to be on it. And, and then I picked the, the leads engineers for the various universities that were contributing to the internet design, and they became the Internet Configuration Control Board. I left DARPA in uh, late 1982 to go into the private sector. My successor renamed the ICCB, the Internet Activities Board, with 10 task forces under it. That uh, spawned the Internet Engineering Task Force, which was one of the larger of the task forces and the Internet Research Task Force. Uh, and we required in this uh, standardization process that you had to show multiple implementations designed and built from the spec, not from sitting down with the other guy who had something working. This was to verify that the spec was sufficient uh, to actually make something work. So in 1977, uh, I was uh, still at ARPA at the time, feeling like it was important to show that this stuff could actually link different kinds of packet switch nets together, because the whole idea was to allow an arbitrarily large number of distinct, separate, and disparate packet switching systems to interwork. So we had a mobile packet radio network operating out on the Bayshore Freeway or, and in the Bayshore area in San Francisco. We had a packet satellite system that we'd built over the Atlantic using Intelsat 4A. And then we had the ARPANET, which had been extended to Europe by that time using an internal satellite hop. Now, the, the model, uh, the, well, I should say the, the um, purpose that drove this particular design was the use of the internet technology for command and control. So by this time, we're saying packet switching works. How do we use it to help us use computers in command and control? And of course, the immediate um, obvious problem is that that means computers in airplanes, computers in chips at sea, and computers in mobile vehicles. And up to that point, all we had were dedicated telephone lines connecting uh, fixed installation computers. So we needed, and, you know, you can't use wires to connect the tanks because they run over the wires and they break and airplanes never make it off the tarmac and the ships get all tangled up. So we had to use mobile radio and satellite. They had different speeds, different error rates, different latencies, uh, different packet sizes, different addressing structures. And so we had to figure out how to bind them all together and that's what TCP IP did. And so Remarkably, uh, in, on November 22nd, 1977, we demonstrated that this stuff actually works uh, in that elaborate environment. Then comes uh, a kind of a, a 
spread of internet. So how did this actually get out there? This was an all DARPA thing up until this point. So uh, my good friend Bob Metcalf, who's the inventor of Ethernet when he was at Xerox Park, started a company called 3Com in 1979 to sell commercial Ethernets. And he built a TCP IP for um, the Unix operating system so that his Ethernet would be useful. Uh, the National Science Foundation sponsored something called the CSNet, Computer Science Network, starting in 1981, again, using the TCP IP protocols. Some microsystems get started. They decide to use open protocols and open, uh, you know, open uh, designs, and they, so they adopt TCP IP. Berkeley uh, is paid by, uh, by DARPA to go implement uh, another version of TCP IP on Unix. Um, and that was Bill Joy's um, uh, contribution. Of course, he was one of the founders of Sun Microsystems. Then comes commercialization in one respect, and that's equipment. So Cisco Systems and Proteon and others subsequently, like Juniper, uh, started building routers. You know, what was interesting is that the way you built a router originally was that you found a computer and a graduate student, and you wrapped the graduate student around the computer, and that turned it into a router. <laughs> the, the problem we had is that we ran out of graduate students. So, so Cisco uh, had its origins at uh, Stanford University. They started building equipment that you could essentially buy, so you could build a piece of, uh, of internet. And as the system began to grow, uh, we realized that the naming system needed to be um, also, well needed to be uh, redesigned. Originally, all we were doing is sending a file around with a list of all the host names and their IP addresses. That was it. And so this file would go out once or twice a day, and you'd update all of your tables. But as the network started to get bigger and bigger, more networks were uh, involved. Uh, more sites were involved. Uh, we had to develop a, a richer architecture. So the domain name system, which is a hierarchical distributed file system, was developed in 1984 by Paul Macapetris and, and John Postel. Uh, and then uh, John, bless his heart, who was the RFC editor, uh, becomes the Internet Assigned Numbers Authority. He, he is personally handing out IP address space and keeping track of it in a notebook somewhere and handing out domain names. He does this all himself, one guy, RFC editor, domain names, and IP address allocations. Well, um, at this point, um, the National Science Foundation decides that it's going to build five supercomputers, and it's thinking, how are we going to get the 3,000 research universities in the United States connected to the supercomputers? Maybe we should build a network. Well, this network is going to have to connect 3,000 universities plus the five supercomputer centers. And then they ask, what protocols should we use to achieve this objective? And a guy from um, Ireland had been brought into NSF to run the supercomputer center program and decided that uh, in 1985 that they would use the TCP IP protocols to do this. This caused a gigantic hue and cry. Because in 1978, in Europe, uh, the um, International Standards Organization launched a project called Open Systems Interconnection. And so we're now in a pitched battle between TCP IP and OSI, except nobody had implemented OSI. They just had stacks of documentation, beautifully documented, fantastic new vocabulary, seven layers, uh, you know, wonderfully documented. So uh, this Irish guy says, I need something that works. 
So he chooses TCP/IP, and he is—he—he uh, he, he, there was a lot of incoming as a result of that decision. But he stuck with his guns, uh, and a good friend of mine, David Mills, built the first uh, NSFNet backbone on 50 kilobit lines, which at the time were, you know, moderately high speed. Uh, it died instantly, overloaded by demand and traffic, and so the uh, NSF's response uh, was to design and build a T1 network. Uh, with the help of MCI, Merit, and IBM. And in the meantime, in 1986, my good friend Dan Lynch starts a company called Interop to show the private sector how does TCP IP work and how all of their equipment could be made to enter work. So they had a big show net, a big ethernet, a yellow cable. And in order to be at Interop, you had to show up and show your stuff worked with everybody else's stuff. You can't imagine how much debugging got done at those Interop things, because these guys are out there trying to sell their gear, and the buyers are saying, show me it works. And so it was a fabulous arrangement all around, because lots and lots of people uh, got to see how it worked, and lots of people got their products to work uh, as a consequence of that. And I just want to draw attention to one of the things that NSF did that turned out to be super helpful. And again, I want you to be thinking about this in terms of commercialization and distribution of knowledge and access. In this particular case, NSF said, okay, we're going to build this backbone network, but we need to collect, connect 3,000 universities. And they thought the poor guys who were building this backbone would have 3,000 potential customers, and that would be very distracting. So they said, hey, this internet thing allows you to build multiple networks and connect them together. That was the whole idea. So they said, why don't we build a dozen intermediate level networks and have them be regional, have various universities cooperate with each other to build these regional networks, and then the regional networks would be connected to the internet backbone, the NSFnet backbone. Well, there were only a dozen regional networks, so that made for a nice, modest size uh, customer base for the NSFNet backbone. And in the meantime, the regional networks had you know, several hundred possible customers spread across all dozen of those. And so the, the result was a rapid growth in the number of networks that were part of the NSFNet or part of the internet backbone. Uh, I've already mentioned the uh, uh, Interop shows. I walked in in 1988 at one of his shows in San Francisco uh, at uh, Moscone Center. 50,000 people attended. Eric Benamou was then the head of 3Com. And the first thing we encountered when we walk in is a two-story Cisco display. So I stopped and I turned to Eric and I said, how much do these cost? And he said, about a quarter of a million dollars. Remember, this is 1988 when a quarter of a million dollars was, you know, was a significant amount of money. Uh, and then he said, that doesn't count the cost of the people to man the thing for a week. And I just stood there, you know, sort of jaw dropping, thinking, my God, somebody thinks they're actually going to make money out of the internet. <laughs> and, and, and then I thought, wait a minute, how in the heck are we ever going to get the general public up on this system? And I figured the government wasn't going to pay for everybody's home use of the internet. So I said, how do we build an economic engine under this thing? And uh, it turned out around uh, that time, around 88, uh, I said, oh, there's a rule that says no commercial traffic is allowed on the government-sponsored backbones. So I thought, how am I going to break that rule? Uh, so so I, I had built MCI Mail, a commercial system for MCI, when I'd gone into the private sector. 
So I went to the then Federal Networking Council and I said, um, would you allow me to perform an experiment to connect the commercial MCI mail system to the internet to see whether we could make the two protocols work together? Of course, the real reason is I wanted to break that, that rule that said no commercial traffic. So they said, okay, uh, for a year. So in 1989, we got uh, the MCI mail system up and running on the, uh, on the internet backbone. Uh, and two things happened as a result. The first one is that three commercial internet services popped up that year, 1989. UUNet, which eventually ended up at MCI, which is now at Verizon, um, and, uh, and PSINet, which was a commercialization of the New York State Education and Research Network, and SurfNet out in San Diego, which was originally supposed to be called SURFNet, because what else would you do in San Diego? You know, they, they had a whole ad campaign, surf the internet, uh, and then they discovered that the guys in the Netherlands had already taken the term SURFNet. So somebody says, well, why don't we call ourselves the California Educational Research Foundation Network? It sounds the same. And then somebody says, oh, maybe we should call Vin. So they called me up and they said, um, is it okay if we call our network CERFnet? And my first thought was, oh, if they screw it up, am I gonna be embarrassed? <laughs> and I said, wait a minute. People name their kids after other people and if the kids don't come out right, they don't blame the people they named them after. So I said, <laughs> so, so I said, sure, why not? So I flew out in July of 89 and Susan Estrada, who was the executive director at the time, and I got a plastic bottle full of glitter and we smashed it over a Cisco router and launched the SurfNet. So those were the first three commercial networks. And about the same time, the other commercial email services, Telemail, OnTime, CompuServe, heard about MCI Mail being connected to the internet. And they said, wait a minute, those MCI guys, you know, they can't have this special position. We want to be connected to the internet too. And the Federal Networking Council said, okay, and so they all got hooked up, and then, surprise, surprise, these networks were completely independent of each other until they hooked up to the internet. And all of a sudden, every one of their customers could talk to every one of their competitors' customers because they were all using the same internet email protocols. That was a little surprise because the internet was free at the time, and uh, so that messed up their business model just a little. In any case, um, those were the sort of unexpected side effects. And then along comes Tim Berners-Lee. He's at CERN, he's a physicist, and he's trying to figure out how do I help my physics buddies share their papers with each other? You know, their formatted text and imagery and graphs and charts. How do I make it easy for them to find their stuff? And he invents the World Wide Web, HTML for formatting and HTTP for hypertext transport protocol. Uh, and uh, nobody notices except a couple of guys at the National Center for Supercomputer Applications, Mark Andreessen and Eric Bina, who build the Mosaic Browser, which is a graphical interface to the World Wide Web. You know, a million downloads in two weeks, everybody goes nuts. The internet is suddenly a Technicolor magazine, and it's got imagery and formatted text and eventually video and audio and everything else. So uh, that starts to take off like crazy. Uh, right about that time, NSF said, we're not going to fund the secretariat for the Internet Engineering Task Force anymore. So I said, okay, we got to find a nonprofit to go underwrite the cost of running the secretariat. So Bob Kahn and I started the Internet Society in 1992. Another reason that I'm going through this is to uh, draw your attention to the fact that in this 
evolving internet environment, we would create new institutions as, as the need arose. So we didn't try to anticipate ahead of time all the different institutional elements that were needed. But this was, uh, this was one that was needed for funding purposes, and eventually, of course, it's played a significant role in policy development and articulation. In, uh, in Europe, uh, there was a Réseau IP, or IP, Réseau IP Européen, which is a, a, a internet protocol net research networks in Europe. They started implementing TCP IP again against the background of OSI should conquer everything. And so they took a risk uh, and joined us in that space. The National Science Foundation paid for connections, international connections between the European research networks, the American research networks, the Japanese research networks. So NSF, once again, um, sort of plowed the ground to help make this uh, a global phenomenon. The Asia-Pacific Network Information Center gets started in 93 uh, and is responsible for allocating IP address space and domain names, similarly uh, the RIPE NCC. Netscape Communications gets founded to do the Mosaic browser and goes public in 1995. Its IPO goes through the roof and the dot boom is on. So just to catch you up uh, to uh, the end of the institutional story, the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers gets started in 1997. So the authority for all of this stuff, the policy for the Internet, went from the Department of Defense to the National Science Foundation to the Department of Commerce by way of NTIA and now finally independently uh, operated by ICANN. Uh, every time somebody invented a new networking technology, somebody said, okay, it's over for the internet. And I used to tell everybody, you know, IP runs over everything, including you, if you don't get out of the way. <laughs> so and that's what happened. The internet evolved successfully because of its open architecture. It was designed to be evolvable. It was designed to invite new applications, new protocols, new implementations. And we should be thinking about that. This freedom to create new services and applications is vital. And as we think about exploration of the rest of the solar system, we're going to want to have an architecture that will invite new applications and new protocols as, as, they are, uh, as the need arises. Uh, I think in the internet world, we had to have incentives for the business world to build and operate and sustain, maintain, and grow this stuff. Final point is the future isn't written yet. Do you remember that line from Back to the Future? We get to write it. So that's your job. We get to write the future of the interplanetary network. We get to write the future of PACE and some of the other missions that are coming up. That's not only a big responsibility, but it's also an absolutely wonderful opportunity. So I join you in looking forward to writing that future. Thank you very much. While the internet and IP have become ubiquitous, Cerf's contributions to communications and networking are far from behind him. In the late 90s, he was on the team that originated the DTN protocols. Today, his work on DTN seeks to revolutionize networking once again, allowing communications engineers to extend the internet deep into space. What is DTN? What makes it different from standard IP? Goddard Communications architect and DTN engineer Dave Israel explains. 
we're bringing uh, internet-style operations in locations and scenarios where, where the internet protocols won't work. It's a network-based store-and-forward um, protocols. Uh, so the DTN originally stood for delay, so, so uh, first issue is the, uh, the speed of light time, the IP, and particularly things like the TCP IP uh, protocol. Uh, there's actually a lot of back and forth between your computer and whatever computer you're connected to, quick messages that go, go back and forth that, that the user never notices because there's such a short delay. Uh, once you start going distances where that speed of light time, there's, there's nothing you, you can do about it. We still haven't worked out traveling or communicating faster than the speed, speed of light. Uh, so, uh, so you get these, these delays. So if you wanted to say um, hello to somebody and they say hello back and uh, there's a 10-minute speed of light time delay, then that that's, takes 20 minutes for that exchange to happen. So if you have uh, two endpoints that need to exchange little things back and forth in order for a protocol to work, then that's just not going to cut it when, when, you're, when you're far away. Uh, and then the other aspect built into that example is this assumption that the two endpoints of the conversation are connected at the same time. And what we have are uh, situations where uh, maybe, let's say, there's something on the far side of the moon, and we want to put a relay up. It would be one thing if, if we needed to work out uh, only communicating the time when the relay is in view of the thing on the surface and Earth at the same time would really limit the, the amount of uh, time we'd be able to send data. But if we could do it in, in pieces and have the user on the surface send it to the relay whenever the relay is in view, and then the relay sends the data back whenever the Earth is in view, then, then you get more opportunities to, to send more data. And DTM provides uh, automated ways to, to do that. To simplify, let's look back at the Pony Express. Each DTN node is a station where horses or mail carriers can rest before moving to the next one. If there's no clear path to the next station, the mail can remain at that station until a path clears. Alternately, if another path opens up, the mail can move through the network of Pony Express stations or DTN nodes without dealing with the downed station. So, unlike the computer-to-computer -computer IP connection used in the modern internet, DTN technologies allow for the temporary disruptions often experienced by spacecraft far from our planet. Just as the Pony Express riders conquered great distances by breaking the journey into smaller pieces, DTN allows data to travel piecemeal through a network comprised of many stopping points and alternate routes. I like to think that DTN lets the data get creative. Even if the path home isn't obvious, DTN finds a way. DTN technologies and protocols wouldn't just benefit spacecraft far from home. Implementing DTN on Earth could improve communications services for remote locations with spotty connectivity, like the rainforest or the Arctic. In 2018, NASA used DTN to demonstrate this terrestrial benefit by sending a selfie from the National Science Foundation's McMurdo Station in Antarctica to the International Space Station, which has been using DTN for science data since 2015. Starting at McMurdo, DTN software on a mobile phone bundled the selfie data for its journey to the space station. The bundles traveled from the McMurdo ground station to NASA's White Sands complex via the Tracking and Data Relay Satellite System, a constellation of relay satellites 22,000 miles overhead. Then, a series of DTN nodes forwarded the bundles to NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, 
the access point to the space station's DTN network. The bundles were then forwarded to the space station via another satellite link. The final DTN node extracted the picture data from the DTN bundles that originated from Antarctica, reassembled the original picture, and displayed it on board the station. Data transmission has always been a challenge for Antarctic researchers. With scant civil infrastructure and very few providers able to service the geographic South Pole, the data demands there far exceed the capabilities needed by scientists hoping to get their data from the Arctic back to their research institutions. Communication disruptions can have serious consequences for researchers, disturbing collaboration between distant scientists. Though Antarctic researchers are not communicating across interplanetary distances, McMurdo's remote location and minimal infrastructure make it an ideal candidate to benefit from DTN. If DTN data bundles from the Antarctic fail to transmit all the way through the network, they can simply go into storage until an alternate path off the continent can be found. If the bundles were all part of a larger file, that file can be reassembled at the final destination once all the packets have found their way through the network. Before Vint Cerf spoke with the communications and navigation community at Goddard, he went to visit the team working on the Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem Mission, or PACE. PACE is an early adopter of DTN and will become the first science mission to implement the technology in space for operations. The PACE mission will advance scientists' understanding of our oceans and build on decades of NASA research into ocean systems. The PACE satellite has instruments capable of studying everything from the carbon cycle to blooms of phytoplankton, microscopic algae with an outsized impact on ocean ecosystems. The benefits of PACE research will be felt worldwide, aiding in the assessment of water and air quality, providing insight into Earth's climate system, and monitoring ocean ecology. Andre Dress, PACE Mission Manager. The communication support we need from them is, has multi uh, facets to it, right? So there's just a real-time telemetry that gets transmitted down to the, the ground stations through the, net, the NEN network over here to Goddard so that the people at the, the Mission Ops Control Center can see the data, right? And then there's uh, recorded data, so there's comes in a couple flavors, so there's like housekeeping data. Housekeeping data is like, you know, temperatures, engineering units on, you know, pointing and stuff like that. Uh, and then there's the science data. So that all the, that data is captured and stored on the spacecraft and then transmitted back uh, through the NEN, back here to Goddard where it's processed. And from, from a, a DTN perspective, it, uh, it helps in, in the releasing of memory. So the faster we can acknowledge that the data is here on the ground, right, and captured and, and stored, the sooner we can release the memory on the spacecraft. As an early adopter of DTN, PACE is proving the technology as an operational capability, encouraging other science missions to use DTN protocols. This will go a long way to infuse the innovation into space communications networks. The benefits to the PACE mission and to the DTN development effort could change the way we think about both Earth's natural systems and NASA's digital ones. It's a symbiotic relationship, one of the many ways NASA explores as one. John Verbal works to infuse DTN technologies into new missions. Yeah, infusion is where you take a technology um, that sort of is a um, 
an opportunity, something that we know has a lot of benefit, but it doesn't have a specific mission uh, that's using it yet or that's depending on it. And basically sort of infusing it means to take it and, and develop it and build it so that it's ready to meet mission needs. So we spend a lot of time looking at the needs from an operations point of view, which in many ways are different from the needs from just a pure technologist's point of view. And that operationalization is sort of things like, you know, how is an operator going to work with this technology or the software? How is, how is it going to interact with the other elements within the network or the system? Um, how are you going to control it? How are you going to get status from it? How is it going to be um, interacting with other things, sort of what we call con-ops or concept of operations? And so that's the type of things that working with technologists, we can build up their repertoire and actually operationalize. Commonly, people refer to something as the Wild West to capture a sense of lawlessness. Many describe the early days of the internet as the Wild West because at the time internet networking technologies were developed, there were few regulations to guide developers. Pioneers like Vint Cerf had a blank slate to chalk up as they saw fit. Out of that lawless chaos, our digital age was born. But I think the phrase Wild West also carries tinges of optimism. It's about wide open spaces and boundless innovation. It's about the Pony Express, a logistical marvel that carried mail faster than ever before, connecting two disparate ends of this vast continent. It's about the internet, a network that connects all of humanity, bridging oceans and forests and even the Arctic. And now it's about DTN, a technology that promises to connect us to each other, no matter what planet we might call home. This season of The Invisible Network debuted in November of 2019. The podcast is produced by the Space Communications and Navigation Program, or SCAN, out of Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Episodes were written and recorded by me, Danny Baird, with editorial support from Matthew Peters. Our public affairs officers are Peter Jacobs of Goddard's Office of Communications, Claire Skelly of the Space Technology Mission Directorate, and Catherine Hamilton of the Human Exploration and Operations Mission Directorate. Special thanks to Barbara Addy, SCAN Policy and Strategic Communications Director, Rob Garner, Goddard Web Team Lead, Amber Jacobson, Communications Lead for SCAN at Goddard, and all those who have lent their time, talent, and expertise to making the Invisible Network a reality. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts of the episodes, visit nasa.gov invisible. To learn more about the vital role that space communications plays in NASA's mission, visit nasa.gov scan.